We claim to be Bible Christians. We have bet our lives in this world and the next on what this book declares to us. We don't value it for its sound. We don't value it for any mantras or mottos from its words. We value it for the sense and the understanding we get of what God has declared to us. I thank you for coming out tonight. This is for you. This is for you to learn the Word of God and to learn how to read it, to understand it, to understand why we hold the positions that we do on so many verses that are different from how other Christians hold those same verses. Let us ask the Lord to bless us. Father in heaven, blessed God, thy word is truth. We thank thee for every word of God. It is what we ought and must live by. Every word of God is pure, and you are a shield and a defense to them that put their trust in thee. We will not add to thy word nor take away from it. We will let God be true, but every man a liar. And we want you to show us your word. We thank you for all that you have shown us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that not only will we accumulate wisdom on how to use the scriptures, but we will accumulate conviction to obey those scriptures, to apply them, to teach them to our wives, to teach them to our children, to teach them to our church, and to defend them against heretics in or out of our assembly. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would forgive us our sins, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of thy law, that you would convince us at the heart level of the truth of everything that we cover that is true. And if we are in error on any point, reveal it clearly to us, and we will repent and change from that error. Heavenly Father, we want to follow thee perfectly. Our hearts are full of zeal. Our spirits are ready. And we want to follow thee. Show us a clear path. And we will run in the way of your commandments. We thank you that you inspired your word, preserved it, and gave it to us. And if the Jews should have considered the gift of the scriptures, the chief blessing that you ever gave them, we have so much more. We have a testament far superior to theirs, built on better covenants and better promises. And we thank you for it. We thank you that you have made each of us, to a certain degree, a ready scribe in the law of God. And we pray that tonight you'll bless us to be even better. Heavenly Father, establish and further your kingdom in the earth and use us in whatever way and means you find for us that we might defend thee in thy precious word. Forgive us where we have neglected it, disobeyed it, and not loved it as we should, and help us to do so more. For we pray in Jesus Christ's holy and precious name, which is the object of the revelation of your scriptures. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm sorry that I don't have printed outlines in front of you to help you participate and be engaged in the presentation. Some of you would appreciate that. Some of you wouldn't care. It's hard for me to get outlines done very much in advance because I'm always looking to tweak it and put in one more page that might be helpful. But I will try to do that for next time. I sent in a couple of A-bombs this week so far. Yesterday and today in the Proverbs. Yesterday's proverb was Proverbs 23.9, which said, Speak not in the ears of a fool. And we elaborated on those words. And it sure shocked some people out there 
who thinks that going to a jail is God's preferred method of evangelism. And then today's was, my son, meddle not with them that are given to change in the political realm, revolutionary thinking, rhetoric against our government, jokes about our government. I sent that out, and boy, did I get hit this morning when I got up to a slap in the face. I staggered out of my office at 7.30 after having spent two hours answering some emails from Sri Lanka, from Ukraine, people that live under more oppressive governments, thinking that I'm totally off my rocker. They love the Proverbs commentaries, but they thought that I had totally missed the boat because I did not defend them and run down their governments. But we are going to stick with the Scriptures. And God made those governments, and those governments aren't much more onerous than we are when we have a bad day around our wives and children, as we all should be willing and ready to admit. But how in the world can Christians come up so angry against us explaining a verse so thoroughly, using Scripture, not proposing anything outside the pages of Scripture, and not one of them gave me one Bible verse. So you know what my first line was back to every one of them. In your heat and passion to criticize most everything that I wrote in the commentary on this verse, you forgot one important thing. What is the Bible basis for your thinking? Don't give me your feelings, because I have just as intense feelings about the present president of the United States of America, that I can't operate by feelings. But we got to go to the Word of God, and that's why you're here, and I want to equip you to be able to handle the Word of God. Some of you are going to take little away, except maybe this confidence. We do approach the Bible differently than others. Some of you are going to take away a hunger for the Word of God. I want to learn those rules better. I want to think those rules instinctively because I want to use the Word of God correctly. And I hope that there's both in this assembly. I hope that God will raise up some. They will be ready scribes in the law of God. They will have a fire in their bosom for God's words and to be able to rightly divide them and present them and to communicate understanding like Ezra did. And may God raise up some that will carry the torch of truth when you bury the older generation of this church. This is what we're going to cover this evening, as you can see in front of you. But we need to keep moving on. But for before we move on, let's go back to last meeting and quickly run through what we covered. We are studying one of the most valuable topics and bodies of information that God's given us. Our system of hermeneutics. Our rules for Bible interpretation. It's a work in progress, so as you're sitting there taking it in, and as you review the outlines that I send you afterwards so that you can have a paper copy, any suggestions you have are helpful. If you're reading your Bible and you find distance between a pronoun and its antecedent, I'm giving you an example. You find some distance between a pronoun and its antecedent. That's the word that's being represented by the pronoun. Write it to me. If it's good enough, It'll get included. I mean, if it's, if it's a good example, it'll get included. If you run into anything that you think would be a good example, send it to me. I'll include it. I'll buy you a foot long from Subway or something. This is a, a joint project as much as you want it to be. We want to have as thorough and as complete of a hermeneutic system as possible with as many illustrations as possible. We have hundreds right now, hundreds of illustrations. I've been to some sites that have a hermeneutics outline. They'll have five. They're not even illustrations. They're just conceptual ideas of, of hermeneutics. We have hundreds 
of illustrations of how to put the rules into practice. It's by God's gift to us, which makes it very exciting and, and practical and more easily applied. Bible knowledge today, without understanding, is truer than ever. Everybody, So many Christians claim to believe the Bible, but they don't understand the sense of what God meant by the words that are there. There's horrible heresies on every front of religion by what used to be considered conservative or fundamental Christians. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ questioning the, the seminary trained and the doctors of his day, have ye never read? Have ye never read? The heir do not, not knowing the scriptures. We went over a number of those, even from one gospel, the gospel of Matthew. What are the means of understanding? They were found in Nehemiah 8.8. Read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and give the sense and cause people to understand the reading. We want to be able to read, identify the sense, and give that sense to others to communicate understanding. I want you to know how our pulpit works, what the study has done behind the scenes before anything is preached to you. It is the greatest burden. One of the members of this room wrote me this week and said, my wife and I pray every day for you to rightly divide the book of Romans. That is the nicest and kindest thing that could possibly be done for me because it is the biggest burden I bear. I walk in terror every day that I will misdivide a verse and that is I am not making up words throwing at you. I look at them, I relook at them, I recheck them. I'm never content. The Lord could show us something someday to change something that we've held in the past. Very important for us all. Thank you for those prayers. We do not, we do not want just the sound of words. We want the sense. The essential goal of what we're after is how to interpret God's word to find out what he meant so that we can comprehend the words of scripture. Remember the examples we went through of Nehemiah chapter 8 and that great preaching service they had there. And Matthew chapter 12, the explanation of the words, God will have mercy and not sacrifice. Because the, the Pharisees were condemning the apostles and they did not have a justifiable reason. We read about Elihu. We looked at every word of God. And then last of all, the last point on this page, the personal qualifications to be able to understand the word of God. They are more important than the rules that we're going to enter into tonight. Is it an art or a science? Very good, yes. It's a science in that we will have rules. The Bible gives us rules, but it's an art in the fact that we have the Spirit of God moving upon different men differently, depending on their submission, prayers, faithfulness, fear of the Lord, delighting in Him, and the rest of those personal qualifications. Let's start tonight with rule number one. No contradictions in the Bible. This is rule number one. Let me read to you these three verses from Second Peter chapter 1. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. I hope all of you love those words right there. More sure word of prophecy. That is where we start. We start with God is true, but we start with his word is true. Thy word is truth. It is more sure than what in this context? The voice of God from heaven to Peter, James, and John in the presence of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. That is one impressive service. But Peter would write later about that event. That's, that event is described in verses 16 through 18. That verse 19, we have also, we have more than that from heaven. We have the Bible. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. And here's God's word to each of you and to me. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. 
You do well for yourself, your wife, your children, your grandchildren, if you'll take heed to this more sure word of prophecy, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. What's in USA Today and what's in Forbes magazine is darkness compared to the light of God's word. Until the day dawn, Jesus Christ comes and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, knowing this first, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. I love it when God tells me what comes first. I love it when he gives me a rule of interpretation and tells me of its priority. And this is in the Bible. This isn't drawn from some seminary class's text. This is from the word of God itself. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men, plural, of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. These holy men of God, there were about 40 of them that wrote our scriptures, but they were moved by one divine author, so there is a consistent whole to the Bible, meaning there are no contradictions in the Bible. This is the first rule of Bible study, knowing this first. We assume that the Bible is surer than God's voice from heaven because it was inspired by the singular Holy Spirit. This is rule number one, the large context. And do you know how large this context is? It is 66 books in two testaments of 1,189 chapters and 31,101 verses, and I have not memorized the number of words in your King James Bible. But that is the big context that gives us rule one, there are no contradictions. Let's look at this verse a little closer. We gladly claim this as the first rule of Bible interpretation. But what does that word private mean? Look at it up here. Private interpretation. Brother Crosby, I can see that this verse is talking about interpreting the Bible, but what does it mean, private interpretation? Well, here we go with a definition of the word private. Private is something that is separate, alone, individual, personal, peculiar, special, unique, different. There is no separate, alone, individual, personal, peculiar, special, unique, or different interpretation of the Word of God. It all has to fit with the rest of the Bible because there's one author presenting one cohesive system of truth. And this is where we start. We do not let the Bible have contradictions. No part, no part of the Scripture can teach a contradiction to the whole. We will not allow it. There are no contradictions. It is our job to reconcile all parts. That is what a ready scribe in the law of God is. It's taking the whole and making sure that as I read this verse, and I take a position on this verse that I am not contradicting anything else in the Bible. Now, I took one tough position in Proverbs 24, 21 for today's proverb. My son, meddle not with them that are given to change. Fear thou the Lord and the King. I got it out of order there, but it's Proverbs 24, 1, 24, 21. The position we took on that verse doesn't contradict anything else in the Bible. We can reconcile the whole Bible to that rule. And that rule is so important. If you want a peaceful life, if you want a submissive wife, if you want submissive children, then you better hate any arrogant, haughty, critical attitude toward those in public office or that are over you in any position. If you even smell it, if you even have any of it rubbing on you, if you are spotted with that work of the flesh, it is going to come to haunt you in your wife and your children. They're going to eat you up because you will not submit to those that are over you. Hello, Travis. Why are there no contradictions? 
because it was written by 40 writers, but only one author. So we believe in the, in the coherent, cohesive whole of the scriptures without individual parts. We don't run in and grab a verse because we like it, though it contradicts 10 others, and then take a position on it. Let's look at some other verses about this particular rule. Our, our first rule, the large context of the whole Bible. There are no contradictions in the Bible. What do we want from this verse? We want, let God be true, but every man a liar. We start with this axiom of God's truthfulness. Any contradiction we hear, if you hear it, or if you discover one while you're reading, makes them or us a liar. If you take a position in a verse that contradicts the rest of the Bible, or something else in the Bible, you're making yourself a liar against God's word. We don't want to be in that verse. We just want to trust God and his truthfulness. We start from the premise that scripture is perfectly correct. Interpretation finds the solutions that exalt God's truthfulness. Are there some difficult, apparent dilemmas in the Bible? Many of them. They're there to find out how we're going to react to them. They're there to check our integrity and whether we trust God. I will take anyone's explanation of an apparent contradiction as long as it gives God the glory that there is a reasonable, sensible explanation for the apparent contradiction because I'm always going to side with God. I am never going to side with somebody who describes the fly that got into the scribe's ink and dragged his water-laden, his ink-laden butt across the page and changed a 22 to a 42 so that in one verse we have Ahaziah being 22 years old when he became king, and in another verse, 42 years old when he became king, because there is profound wisdom in that difference that all the modern versions of the Bible have taken away by reducing the 42 to 22, even though they are the ones that say, we resort to the highest authority on earth, the originals. But they change their original whenever it doesn't make sense to their puny little minds. They're liars. We will always give God the benefit of the doubt. There is something he wants us to know about Ahaziah for saying he's 22 in one place and saying he's 42 in another place. And we're going to see that before we're done. If there's any contradictions remaining, do you know what we say? They're our fault, not his. Let's go to another verse. We just start out with let God be true. What a way to live. Look what the Bible says about itself in the words of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. There's nothing wicked in the Bible. It's full of truth. All the words. Look at this wonderful text. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing forward or perverse in them. In the Bible, there is nothing forward, obnoxious, wicked, contrary. Because it all fits if we understand. And look at what the next verse tells us. You say... Can we really fit the Bible together where the whole thing has nothing forward or perverse in it? They, that is the words of my mouth, they are all plain to him that understandeth and right to them that find knowledge. If we study and we find understanding and knowledge, everything in the Bible can be eventually brought together. Maybe not in our lifetimes. Maybe God will bless us to give our children a foundation that they can build a better edifice on than we have. I don't care how it happens. I just know that these verses are true. Because see, here I go again. They are all plain to him that understandeth. Do you know what I believe about that? They are all plain to him that understandeth. That's what I believe about that. 
and I believe it with all my heart, and write to them that find knowledge. Hasn't the Lord shown us more and more and more? When we have pursued the truth and loved Him and feared Him, has He shown us more and more? Has He led us? He's going to continue to lead us. If He stops leading us, it won't be His fault. It'll be our fault. His hand is not shortened. His ear is not stopped up. It's our sins that get in the way. Another verse. Jesus said, If He called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. This is part of our first rule. There's no place in the Bible that you can break the Bible. You can't take a verse and show me, that verse shouldn't say that. Oh, yes, it should say that. You say, well, we need another presentation on the King James Bible. I've given that before, and that's not part of this study. It was our assumption when we started, wasn't it? We started out with God is, God Jehovah is, and we came down to the King James Version of Scripture. We start there. That's another study of its own. But Scripture cannot be broken. What does that mean? In every, every word may be confidently trusted without fear of contradiction. If you will trust every word of God, what appears to be a contradiction is only up here. It's only because we don't see clearly yet. And we want to pray, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. What wondrous thing do we want to see? That all the words of her mouth, that is Lady Wisdom, are plain and right to them that find knowledge. We use this verse as one of our examples of arguing individual words. No matter what we find in Scripture, we trust it to be fully true. Anything that looks like a contradiction is our fault. It's never his fault. Let's look at another verse. John wrote in his epistle, I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it. And no lie is of the truth. There's no lies in the Bible. Our first rule, there are no lies in the Bible, there are no contradictions in the Bible, we make the whole thing fit. The truth is just what it says it is. It's the truth. It cannot contain a lie. God's word is truth. The Bible says it is, and there's no lies in it, as this text declares. What appears to be a lie is just that. An appearance to you only. It's an apparition to you. It's something that has appeared for you. Because you're looking at something wrong. It is not a lie. It's what we pray for. It's what we study for. Lord, show me how this verse fits. And there's only 31,000 to fit. It's our job to reconcile apparent lies. Of course, you know we'll never be able to help the NIV with Goliath or Mark 1-2. The NIV in 2 Samuel 21-19 says that Elhanan, the son of Jerorajim, killed Goliath. We'll never be able to help the NIV because they've changed the words of God. Now they have lies, therefore their book is not truth. You cannot say of the NIV, thy word, the NIV, is truth. Because it has lies in it, because they changed God's words. We can't help them in Mark 1-2, where it says that a prophecy from Malachi 3-1 was from Isaiah. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then in their footnotes they say, Malachi 3-1. What kind of a man is it that will sign off on a Bible that they profess is a great improvement in giving the scriptures to God's people when they put a footnote that says, our text is wrong. Do you know about Mark 1-2? Does everyone in here know about Mark 2? That when you see someone reading an NIV, you can just walk over there and flip them. Can I show you something in your Bible? And take them over. I used to carry two Bibles to the bank, a King James and an NIV. I wanted somebody to go to lunch with me that was a Bible reader so that we could have a little sport before we went back to work. 
because I love the Word of God. And they mess around with the Word of God, and I hate the NIV. We can't help them, because they've got lies, and their book is no longer truth. Back to our verse. I don't want you to forget this one. That's why we've got it a few times. 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this first. Do you need any help on those three words? Is it something you're supposed to know? Does that mean you'll forget it tomorrow, next week, or next month? Hopefully not. It is something you're supposed to know, and where does it rank in interpreting God's Word? First, we are dealing with interpretation, aren't we? Does the context around us tell us that it is the Bible we're talking about? The more sure word of prophecy. Does it tell us in the next verse that it came by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Yes, it does. Prophecy means revelation from God. That no revelation from God of the Scripture is of any private interpretation because holy men, plural, spake as they were moved by the singular Holy Ghost. We gladly claim this as our first rule of Bible interpretation. I've already been over those five points. I don't want you to forget them. So we let's, let's begin taking that first rule and applying it. Why is this our first rule? Well, let me think about that for a while. Why is 2 Peter 1.20 our first rule? Because we are told it is the first rule in 2 Peter 1.20. So we start there. I thank the Lord for that. What if he had given us ten rules and hadn't put them in order for us? And some of them aren't in order. We just know from experience which ones help the most. Let's believe this. When the Bible says it's first, we put it first. The study of it, how do we apply this? Why is this our first rule? Study of a text. What is a text? A verse, a sentence, a paragraph, a chapter. Study of a text should be limited to the realm of possibilities. Because any contradiction that's raised blows that possibility out the door. We don't consider it. It contradicts other places in the Bible. There's no way it can be saying that. If we do not start with this rule, the possible senses are infinite. Infinite. I mean, infinite. Do you know what that word means? It means you will never accomplish anything in the one verse you have set out to study. But we can look at a verse and we can quickly narrow it down. It can't be saying that. It can't be saying that. It can't be saying that. Hey, I'm only left with three choices. What does the rest of the Bible have to say? What does the closer context say? What does the grammar say? This is where we start with this one. First of all, we start with it because God told us to. But he's trying to assume that some people have taken on verses like, This is my body. Can I remind you just very quickly? This is my body, Catholics. Literal, Lutherans, Synecdoche, Presbyterians, Metonymy, Baptists, Metaphor. This is my body. Four words. Have men given their lives for their differences in interpretation on that one, on those four words? They have given their lives. Do you know what we know what isn't? We know what isn't literal. So you can blow that one out the door. You know that you're not eating the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm getting on. Do you see how we use it? We, we can collapse the possible interpretations of a verse down to a manageable number. This rule is the single greatest restraint on misinterpretation. Because this is constantly 
submitting ourselves and humbling ourselves to God and limiting ourselves to what fits the overall scriptures. It is a huge restraint on running into a verse and coming up with some cockeyed idea that people do all the time about what a verse is saying because they're looking at its sound of words and they're looking at it outside the constraints of the Bible. We have shackles on us. We will not consider an interpretation outside what the rest of the Bible teaches. If we use this rule first, it's going to limit the possible senses for the other rules. Then the other rules help us decide what the verse is saying. We first of all blow out 990, reduce it down to 10 possibilities, and the other verses, the other rules, excuse me, are applied to those 10 possibilities, and we arrive at the truth. But if we start with 1,000, oh, no one can understand the Bible. We, walk, we close it and walk away, and that's what most people do. What can happen if we decide to neglect this rule? Well, do you know what they do with 2 Samuel 1.26, where David said that the love of Jonathan exceeded the love of women? Do you know what they do with that verse? Yes. They take our two heroes of the faith and turn them into faggot lovers by misinterpreting this verse. And we might just justify... And we might just justify sodomy with that verse. How did that happen? Because they allowed a contradiction in the Bible. What are the contradictions? David and Jonathan happened to have some women, and they liked women, and they got David got in trouble with women. The Bible condemns sodomy. God blessed David and Jonathan in all their endeavors. And on and on we can go. That verse can't mean what they say it means. But do you know that there are people that maintain that about that verse? We might become British Israelites. Because we read in John 8.44 about Jesus Jesus saying to the Jews, ye are of your father, the devil. Well, if I just open the Bible and come to that verse, and I really have an anti-Semitic grind in my soul, then I'm fantasizing that I have just found a wonderful verse that the devil had sex with Eve. And the offspring was Cain and the Jews. Now, do you all know that that's held by millions of people? Millions. Eve had sex with the devil. The result was Cain. Adam had sex with Eve, and the result was Abel. He was killed. Then Adam and Eve had sex, and they had Seth. And there's two family lines running down through the earth, Gentiles and Jews. Blacks are the beasts of the field. They don't even make it to the sixth day of creation. But you've got to read these guys to believe this. How do they come up with it? John 8, 44. Just, psst. Ye are of your father the devil. Oh, Got to be biological. Yeah, sure, got to be. Hey, let's preach and pound the pulpit with this little verse. You know, we might get the temperance movement wound up again. I'm not scratching it out. I really meant to underline it. By reading Deuteronomy 29.6 and some of these other verses that say wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Well, that means we shouldn't touch it. And they pull them out of the context of the overall Bible that teaches all of God's people, especially the Lord Jesus Christ, love wine on a regular basis. How do we know the Lord Jesus Christ loved wine on a regular basis? Because he made a few hundred gallons of it at a wedding? No. That's the weakest. Because he was called a wine-bibber. In very careful distinction from John the Baptist, who did not drink wine, but the Lord Jesus Christ did. A wine-bibber is a drunkard. Jesus was never drunk. You know he wasn't. But you know they wouldn't have accused him of being a drunkard if he was drinking Welch's grape juice for breakfast every morning. 
They hadn't invented such a poison back then. They used wine for what God created that grape for. I'll bet that the wine he made at that marriage feast was pretty good. Let's go to the next page. How do we apply this first rule? All texts pertaining to a subject must be reconciled. We must not value some over others. Do you know what our tendency is to do? We want to value election, predestination, regeneration, propitiation, and all those works of God's grace over our responsibility to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead. We are to confess with our mouth that He is the Lord Jesus. Those things are all taught in the Bible. We cannot have our favorites. The rest of the world does that with the Bible. We must be fair with all of Scripture. Do you know that Martin Luther, because he read the words, the just shall live by faith in Romans 1.17, he fell in love with the book of Romans because he saw in it his deliverance from the bondage of Rome. But when he read James, he hated it. He called it a straw epistle. He took it out of his Bibles. He said it wasn't inspired. He said it didn't have authority. Because he valued the just shall live by faith over ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Oh, why would God do that? Don't you love our Father for writing the Bible that way? I love Him for doing that. That gives us a little bit of a puzzle. Some of you like to sit around with Rubik's Cube and do play Tetris. You want a puzzle? Then work Romans in with James, which we'll be doing in the next ten Sundays. Over the next two chapters, I don't know how long it'll take. I'm just covering myself. Hopefully. We, we, we follow a two-step approach. We first of all rule out what a verse cannot mean in light of the rest of Scripture, and only then do we worry about the rules to find its positive sense. When you stumble upon a verse that sounds really crazy, and I'm going to show you some, we nope, can't mean that, nope, can't mean that, can't mean that. It can mean these, oh yes. Now if I apply the other rules, I, I can see. I can see what God intended by this verse. It's a two-step approach. Always, when you read a verse, you know what it, the first thing we do. Is it the first thing? Knowing this first. We do not come up with a private interpretation. We will limit it to what the rest of the Bible will allow. We reject the dishonest tendency of Martin Luther that I just mentioned, of looking only at scriptures that agree with our presuppositions. That's a road to heresy. It's the combined message of scripture that's the truth. Let's consider some more examples of the, the neglect of this rule. Many go to Genesis 15, where God told Abraham, come outside and, or, and look to the east, look to the west, north and south. I'm going to give you all this land. He mentioned some property boundaries. He mentioned some nations that would have to be replaced. I'm going to give you this land to you and your seed forever. They wrap their arms around that. God owes Palestine to Israel. So we send F-16s over there to fight off the Arabs. We do all sorts of things to protect that land because of a misinterpretation of that verse that could, they could have been saved just by following rule number one. It can't disagree with the rest of the Bible. Is there at least one place that we can find that says God gave all the land to Israel? Do you think there might be five? Could there be ten? Yeah, near near 50. Near 50. Second point, 
When God said forever, did he mean unconditionally or conditionally? Shouldn't you be able to figure that out by the fact that they were ripped off the land for 70 years and put in Babylon? Shouldn't you be able to figure that out that they were ripped off the land in 70 A.D. for 2,000 years? Why? They, they broke the first rule of Bible study. Brethren, we are dealing with a wonderful gift tonight. I'm so wound up. I, I love the Word of God. I, I remember when the first idea was presented to me about being ordained. There's only one thing I better learn. It's God's Word because I have nothing else to give. My opinions are as filthy and polluted and sinful and wrong and proud and arrogant and corrupt and confused as anyone's. But God's given us a book. And it's His will that's been revealed there by words. And so that's when I started getting NIVs and stuff and hauling them to the bank. I was reading everything Peter Ruckman wrote. I was reading everything I could because of the Bible. And the only reason I'm saying all this, and I'm not the Holy Spirit, but I've prayed for the Holy Spirit to grab some men tonight and put a fire in your bosoms. Do you know what Paul said about the Bible? Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Oh, the Lord lit a fire in him. His legs were churning as fast as a human's legs could churn. The Lord set him down and he just went wild all over the Roman Empire. Oh, what about Acts 22, 16? What did Ananias say to Saul of Tarsus? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Oh, Church of Christ finds a verse like that. They got a sermon for Sunday with Acts 22, 16 and Acts 2, 38. Remember, with an axe in 238, a Church of Christ preacher will whip any Baptist preacher in the world. That's their claim. I'll take my 66 Magnum and pull it in my shoulder holster and blow their little axe and two little 38s, a lady's gun, away. We learn the Bible. Acts 22.16 cannot teach baptismal regeneration. But how do you know that? Because the Bible says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. It tells us that which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the man, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. Yeah. You can't get baptized with both the will of the flesh and the will of man being involved. If you don't, you're going to drown in your immersion. They're wrong. So we look at that verse and say, what in the world does Acts 22.16 mean? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Well, we're not going to answer it tonight because we're learning rule one. And I want to teach you to be content for a while in studying, to be content with blowing out what you know it cannot mean. Lord God of heaven, I believe that Jesus Christ alone justified me and the Holy Spirit alone regenerates me and that Acts 22.16 cannot be talking about the literal, legal washing away of sins. He'll bless you. He'll lead you into the truth. Did you know that in Luke 2.48, Mary said to Jesus that Joseph was his father? Do people get excited about a verse like that? If you were to read that, would that move you? Wow, Mary should know better. Why is Mary saying that Joseph is Jesus' father? I love the Bible. He was his father. He was his legal father. He treated him like a father. He behaved like a father toward him. He was his stepfather, however you want to word it. But he wasn't his biological father because we know that from other verses, don't we? So we can just blow right over that. Yes, and Joseph knew that. 
for sure. Let's keep going. I can't stop at all of these. You know this will be in your inbox before you can go to work tomorrow, by God's grace. And there's a whole lot more. I've called it way down for these slides. And I'm, I'm working on getting that to you as well. I'm sorry. It's very hard for me to unleash an outline because there's always one more verse that could be put in it. And it's it's an obsession and a problem. But it's... Sherry, Sherry tells me sometimes, Just stop! You have enough! But I'm serious. Let's leave our children a body of knowledge that is as exhaustive as we can make it. And if you send me suggestions to add to the ones we've got, I'll put them in. I've gone to so many websites and looked for their, for their illustrations of how a rule of interpretation is used, and they have none or few. We have hundreds. By God's grace. This rule can be ignored and abused even worse. We never take a private interpretation, like Acts 22.16 about washing away your sins, and then rest Scripture to fit. Oh, that is... You understand that we've now doubled our crime. First of all, we took a private interpretation out of Acts 22. Now, we go to 1 Peter 3.21, where it says that baptism does not wash away the filth of the flesh, and we change that to dirt of the body, as it is in the modern versions of the Bible. We have 1 Peter 3.21 that tells us baptism does not wash away the filth of the flesh, so Acts 22.16 cannot be meaning that Saul could wash away his sins legally by baptism. So they now they have to rest two verses of the Bible. Some of you that come from my ancient past, Baptismal church membership. You know, once you take a private interpretation of Acts 2.41, then they that gladly received the word were baptized the same day that were added unto them 3,000 souls. If you take that position, then what do you do with the Ethiopian eunuch out there in the middle of the desert with Philip baptizing him? He instantly became a Jerusalem church member. I would like to see the Jerusalem church when a black Gentile eunuch applied for membership. I think they'd have a few questions. A Jewish church in the city of Jerusalem. The church didn't know him. We don't even need to go there. You see what happens? Once you make the error on Acts 2.41, then you're forced to an error in Acts chapter 8. Doesn't this scare you? If we make... Did you ever play the game Pick Up Sticks? If you move the wrong stick, what happens? Do other sticks move? Can they all roll off the table? Lord, help us. You know where we're going to start? It is the more sure word. Thy word is true. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Knowing this first, knowing this first, knowing this first. I will not take a position in a verse. I will not take a strong position in a verse unless I know it fits everything else that your word teaches. Constantly having that humble attitude toward the Lord lest we do this. Are there any problems with applying this rule? <laughs> yes. It just takes knowing the whole Bible for right presuppositions. Because listen, if you've never read the Old Testament, then you don't have much to fill in about verses of the New Testament. If you've never read the Epistles and you just rely on the Gospels, you're going to run into what we call the great Paul versus Jesus controversy. And it's a big one. 
Paul taught many things different than Jesus did, and Jesus taught many things different than Paul did for two reasons. Jesus was a minister of the Jews. Paul was of the Gentiles. Second reason, Jesus did it in the early stages of the time of Reformation, Paul in the latter stages. Jesus said in Matthew 23, Submit yourselves to the Pharisees, because they sit in Moses' seat. Does that mean we should call the local synagogue, find out the nearest Pharisee, and ask him what he thinks we ought to do with our lives? That's Jesus' instruction to Jews that were under Moses' authority. Just an example. All verses on a given subject must be honestly considered. When we take a position, and I say we, brethren, we are in this together. I am your slave, and you have, you have made it possible for me to do this. And we want to do it better. I'm provoked to want to do it better. This is the great, this is the best subject. Because without properly using the Bible, we're in error. If we use the Bible right, it doesn't matter if we have the right one, if we don't have the right sense in the right one. All verses have to be honestly considered. When we take a position on Proverbs 24, 21, my son, fear thou the Lord and the King, and meddle not with them that are given to change. Don't read them, don't listen to them, don't think about them. Get away from them. When we take a position on that verse, we take it in light of everything the Bible has to say on civil authority. Have we built outlines on civil authority that deal with every aspect of it? Do we see where we can use civil authority? When we ought to, how we ought to handle abuse of civil authority? When we resist civil authority? We look at it all before we take a position on Proverbs 24, 21. Brethren, there are sufficient obstacles in this wonderful book God's written to save inquiring minds that practice this rule humbly and consistently. I believe this about the Bible because of the principles of the Bible. All the words of my mouth are plain to him that understandeth. If we approach the Bible prop, prop, there are sufficient obstacles in Scripture to save inquiring minds that practice this rule humbly and consistently. This is what we believe. God's providence will save those with... There are verses and sentences and paragraphs with more verses defending these points in a more extensive outline that is not these slides. These slides are to make points to you and expect you to review them a little bit or to ask me about them and we'll provide the Bible defense for why we make these claims. God's providence will not let the seeking man who is humble and meets the personal qualifications stay in error. If you don't believe that, then you have a hopeless relationship with your God. And our God is not hopeless. He is full of hope. And He wants you to abound in hope by the power of the Holy Ghost. If you are meeting the personal qualifications and a humble approach, God's going to send you an Elihu or He's going to send you a Philip. And sometimes, even when you're not humble, like Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, he still sends you an Elihu. Because, you know what he also knows? That your frame is weak, and you're dust. And we're, and we're sinful. So he still sends us these men. Was the eunuch a sinless Christian? No. Did he still get Philip? Did he get him out in the middle of the desert? I wonder why that's in the Bible. I wonder why the Holy Spirit told Philip to go down in the middle of the desert. Because when you think you're in a desert, God's going to find you. Why do we get all that extra material? I mean, he was out in the middle of nowhere. Do you know what he, what he did when he saw an oasis? See, here is water. We haven't seen it for six hours. 
Here's water. Did God save us from foot washing? There's only a couple of texts in the New Testament on foot washing that, that wasn't a pure, obvious social custom. We started with the one. I was taught it. Never practiced it until I was in the church that or, where the pastor ordained me. We took John 13 and started from there. And we didn't allow anything to contradict it. There wasn't anything to contradict it. We just tacked 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 or 10 along with it. But then, with study, and by God's grace, and being pushed to defend foot washing more carefully than I had studied it before I was ordained, you come to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 10, you realize, wait a minute! 1 Timothy 5.10 makes foot washing to be only something done by exceptional widows, and the church did not practice this. Now I know why there is no mention of it in any of the epistles or the book of Acts. Oh, if this is the case, then what was happening in John 13 was simply a social custom being practiced by Jesus to show them his humility and submission to the group which they were supposed to practice after he was gone since they were fighting up to the last hour of his life about who was going to be greatest. Are you with me? Can't, I can't spend any more time. The Lord saved us by forcing reflection out of 1 Timothy 5.8 instead of out of John 13. Then, when we take those two, they make a whole lot more sense with the rest of the New Testament as to why there's so much silence about this ordinance of the church. Just an example of how the Lord is merciful and will deliver you. All we have learned so far is what a verse cannot mean. You say, well, that's not very important. Oh, it is huge. It's also limited our field of study to possible interpretations. I like that. I like only working with what could fit, what might fit rather than what can't fit, so why am I even filling up my small little cavity up here for these other possible interpretations? Let's stick with what the Bible teaches. It's, it's wonderful blessing to have this first rule. With the possibilities greatly reduced, the other rules will give us the positive sense of the verse or passage under study. Please, do not forget this important verse of 2 Peter 1.20. This is the first rule of interpretation. And the Bible tells us that. You should memorize it. You should know the verse that comes before it. You should know the verse that comes after it. You should know that it starts out with, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. You should know why it's called more sure, because Peter is describing speaking, hearing God from heaven in that passage. This first rule teaches us the context. And do you, do you understand that we were dealing with context? Just giant context. That's why we've called it large context. We're dealing with the context of the whole Bible. There are no contradictions in the Bible. We will not take a position on a verse that would contradict another verse in the Bible. We will work until it is reconciled where God is true, every man is a liar, and the Bible is handled honestly and with integrity in reconciling all the verses to it. Well, now it's time to consider the second rule. What's the second rule? What's the second rule? The smaller context of a verse. 
Let's collapse that context down from the Bible itself that will not allow a contradiction to the context right around the words or verse that we're studying that will tell us what it does mean. Because that is the second rule of Bible study. When someone throws a verse at you, at you that you've never read before, or that you haven't read in the context of an argument by which they're presenting it to you, the first thing you know what it doesn't mean. And you can generally start ruling out how the other person is using the verse. It can't mean that, because that would contradict this and this and this. I'm not sure what it does mean right now, but I know what it doesn't mean. And if you allow me to be a wise man, I'm going to go study it out, because the Bible says a righteous man studies the answer, but a fool utters all his mind. I have some ideas, but I want to study it out. That's Proverbs 15, 28. It's a nice little ace to have in your back pocket. I'd like some time to study that. But we do that with the first rule. Here's our second rule. And it's the small context, or the verses right around the verse that we're studying. Here's something I would like you to remember. A text used out of context is a pretext. The small context. What do we mean by that? Well, a text right here is a word, a clause, a verse, or a paragraph that you're trying to interpret. The context is the surrounding information showing the author's intent by that text. Out of context is using words contrary to the author's intent. Have you ever said something and it was taken in the context, overheard by someone, and it really got you in trouble because they assumed something very different from what you intended by those words? Every single thing you read whether it's a contract or poetry, depends on its context. Its context is what gives it its real meaning. It is rule number two. It is not three. It is not five. It is number two. Because that is how all interpretation and understanding is derived at finding out what the author intended by looking at the words around it. The facts, the where, the when, the why, the who, the whom and the stuff we're going to be looking at. A pretext is a false impression designed to hide the truth. A text, a Bible verse, used for its sound out of its context, is a pretext. It's an illusion. It is hiding the truth. It is diverting you from the truth. It is a horrible thing. It's a travesty that we do not want to be guilty of. We would rather not take a strong position on a verse, rather than use a verse out of its context. We want to find how it fits the verses around it. This is an important rule. I hope you'll remember it. Rule number two. A text taken out of context is a pretext. I'm thankful that I was taught that by some men about 25 years ago. I just wish they had practiced it as diligently as they taught it. And those of you from the ancient history Know that as well. Nothing else will be said. Small context. A text used out of context is a pretext. Therefore, this is our second most important rule because context is so important. All writings depend on the context to provide the meaning. Remember a spelling bee that I use with you often? If you weren't sure of the word, what did you say? Please use it in a sentence because the sentence determines words their meaning, 
and their spelling. Words do not determine sentences. The man that taught me a, te a text out of its context as a pretext also taught that a word determines its context. Sorry. The context determines a word. If you use a verse out of its context, meaning differently than the author intended it, it's the sound of a lie coming from the Bible. Because you're using the sound of words, you're taking them out of the constraint of what is around that verse to teach something different from its immediate context. It might not disagree with the rest of the Bible. You might be keeping rule one while you break rule two. So we have this conclusion. Using the wrong verse for a true point is the first step to heresy. Because you've taken the liberty of using a verse other than how the author intended it. It's a true point. You have kept rule one. You have fit the rest of the teaching of Scripture. But you've used the wrong verse to prove your point. We are very careful about that. We want to be very careful about that. Because once we start taking the liberty of, hey, this verse sounds good, and we take it out of its context, even if we're defending the truth of God's Word, we've started down the road to heresy because we're using the, the Bible outside of rule number two. What is context? I'm not going to give you that long definition there. Let's grab this right here. I mean, you can get it later. Context is surrounding information that tells what an author means. It gets his viewpoint, his intent. And that's how when you see words in terms of phrase, you will not get confused because you are looking at the whole context, the surrounding material to know what the author intended. What is context? Every word in the Bible is part of a verse. Every verse is part of a paragraph or a subject being dealt with. Every paragraph is part of a chapter. Every chapter is part of a book, and every book part of the whole Bible, which brings us back to rule number one. We cannot, must not, isolate single words and sentences. We have to see them in the surrounding information of the verses and paragraphs and chapter around it. If someone took a single word of yours, or a sentence, singled it out and gave it a meaning that didn't agree with all the words, just think of what make, give meaning, expressions, tones, circumstances, audience, acts, facts. If somebody takes a sentence of yours or a document of yours and doesn't take into account all those things, you are offended. Because they misconstrued what you meant. And brethren, the Lord is offended when we abuse His Word. When we just pick up a soundbite, or we use the Bible as a mantra, or as a motto, we want to be looking for what the Lord intended. And we do that by looking at the smaller context. If you isolate individual words or verses... It's like trying to give an impression or description of a Rembrandt painting from looking at one square inch of it. What would you say about it if you were looking at one square inch of a Rembrandt? You wouldn't even be able to recognize what it is. 
or of Handel's Messiah by listening to a few bars? How would you be able to give a description of Handel's Messiah or what he meant by a few bars? What if you listened to his five-minute amen? And you say, that man sure got carried away with that long amen. But you know, when you listen to Messiah, you say it could be ten. Because it's out of Revelation 5.14, and the four beasts said, Amen. Amen. After what? After the three heavenly choirs bursting forth in praise to the God that was sitting upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. But you only know that by listening to the whole thing. If you hear me say, and hopefully none of you are getting concerned by reading ahead, I beat my wife last night. Well, did I beat her to bed? Or did I beat her in Monopoly? Or how did I beat her? I beat her finished eating... Finishing supper? Please inquire a little further than the word beat. That man beat his wife. And so you've you've misconstrued what he said. You've corrupted what he said. This one sentence to find out what I actually did. You should have asked more by looking around. What did he say before that? What did he say after that? What was he talking about? Was he talking about being at home with his wife? Or was he talking about being out with his wife? Was he talking about having a fight, disagreement? Whatever. You want it, you need to ask more. You've heard the description before, but it's something we want to remember. If we just take that one sentence without asking more, we're going to get confused and misled and come up with horrible things out of the Bible. Proverbs 25.11 is interesting, but there isn't time for it. It's a shame. It is a terrible shame. And it's why we're meeting tonight. Second of 12 sessions. It is a shame that so much preaching today uses words and verses as mantras, mottos, or sound bites without regard to their context. They just, do you know how they can computer search now? There are 20 versions that they use and find the choice of words that they like the best that will make a mantra or a motto for their sermon. It's disgusting. The purpose driven life. 14 versions. Whatever sounded the best for his point. All different words. Or he wouldn't have choose a different version. Because he wanted a different set of words. Because he wanted a motto for what he was trying to teach. You know, the Bible says, let's go by the Bible. Let's ignore our rule. Jesus told Judas, the Bible says Judas went and hanged himself. Jesus said, Go and do thou likewise. The Bible has Jesus also saying, That thou doest, do quickly. What should we do? Do we quickly go out and hang ourselves? The Bible says these three things. We took them out of their context, we slapped them together, and we have ourselves a new pretty doctrine. Do you know how many people context? Oh, this is good. That's a good question. Here's how you remember it. You remember the six W's right here. We remember the who can solve the heresies coming from Daniel 3.25. Who said it? What is in Daniel 3.25? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. He looked down there, and he looked in that fiery furnace, the heat blasting off his face, and he said, I thought we threw four men into the fire, but I see four walking around down there, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Oh, yes. Eternal generation. A Christophany. We've got Jesus in the Old Testament. All we have to do is ask, who said it? An ignorant pagan 
in the heat of a very serious moment. In Daniel 3.25, men will use that to teach us that Jesus Christ existed before Mary had a baby. Some of the most conservative men that we... Primitive Baptists will use that. It doesn't matter. See, Jesus existed in the Old Testament because Nebuchadnezzar saw him in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't know the Lord Jesus Christ from Batman. Do you know what he said three verses later that he saw in the fiery furnace? The Lord has sent his angel to preserve those three men. Who in the world is going to rely on Nebuchadnezzar? Was the man kind of extreme? Had five minutes earlier, he hated the God of heaven? Would he hate him again? Oh, brethren. So look at All we got to do is say, who said it? Oh, thank you, Lord. We know who said it, so we're not going to rely on it for doctrine when it counters everything said in the New Testament. The next one, whom? Leviticus 10.9 says, Thou shalt not drink. Whoa! Who is, whom is that said to? It was said to the priest. And it was said to the priest only for one different, select limited times in their lives. When they were going to go in and offer sacrifices, God did not want them half drunk. Thou shalt not drink wine. Now you got to go look at it. Do you know what? They'll use that verse. They will quote that little phrase and pull it out and make turn it into a baseball bat and beat you with it. Can't you read the Bible? Thou shalt not. Do you kill? The Bible says thou shalt not kill. The Bible also says thou shalt not drink wine nor strong drink. But it's addressed to the Levites and the priests, and it's addressed only for them when they're going in to offer sacrifices. And we get that by just asking the question, whom? That is the party that was addressed, the object of the verses. You know, this is Mark Mark 16. I had to answer this one today. Mark 16, 15 through 18 is, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What's one of the first things we do? We say, To whom were those words given? The eleven apostles. Well, are you an apostle? Then you need to prove that you and I belong in that passage. Because right now, we're not there. It's to eleven apostles. So we start with whom? We, we, we have whom? These six little words are the small context of any verse. And you want someone doing that to you. You know, if your wife walks past the phone, and you're kind of walking away from her down the hall toward the bedrooms, and you say, I love you too. Should your wife ask who and whom? She knows the who. She wants to know the whom. And she should want to know the whom. And when the Lord says something, we want to know the who and the whom. In 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. To whom is that addressed? Usward, the holy brethren of 2 Peter. Why don't they read the book rather than trying to get themselves a little motto, mantra, to fight Calvinists with? God is not willing that any should perish. Haven't you read your Bibles? As a matter of fact, I have. I've read the five verses before that verse, the five verses after that verse, and I've read that verse, which you haven't done, because you would know that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering too. Isn't it precious if we would just read the Bible? Why did he write it that way? Why didn't he write it's just a little systematic theology that would say the Arminians are wrong, the Calvinists are wrong, and you and the Church of Greenville are right? You know? 
because he wants us to study. And he's given enough rope for men to tie a pretty good hangsman noose, toss it over the limb of a tree, tie it to a horse, and kick the horse in the butt and hang themselves. We ask why. Why? In Luke 10, 29 through 37, right over here. That's the Good Samaritan. Why was it given? Is the Good Samaritan given to tell us about the two testaments, which were the two pence that the Good Samaritan gave to the innkeeper to keep the newly converted Christian? Is that what it's for? Is it for the oil and the wine? Meaning the oil of the Holy Ghost and the wine of the gospel that you poured into the wounds of a dead sinner. Is it for that? Is it to define who is my neighbor? Yes. So we ask why. And all of a sudden we take all those verses of the Good Samaritan, blow out all the spiritualizing and allegorizing of origin and primitive Baptist preachers, and arrive at an answer, who is my neighbor? And you know what? The Lord gave a pretty good one, didn't he? When you're going down the road and you find someone that you don't really like, but they're in need, that's your neighbor for today. And it's a wonderful passage. But the power of the passage depends on its local context, which is found by asking the question, why is Jesus giving this lesson? And it's right there in the context. When? We ask, when? In Matthew 23, 1-3, when Jesus said, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, therefore whatsoever they bid you do, do. We want to ask, when? When was that said? We want to, to whom was it said? And who said it? Jesus said it in the early stages of the time of Reformation to Jews before the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we understand that it has a limited context in its timing. What? What are some of the sections of Scripture? The Song of Solomon. This is going to come as a big surprise. Is a song. It's a song. No one has ever written a song to sound like Romans. So don't study the Song of Solomon like you would Romans. It's a song. If we were to take the time, and if I could remember, I would quote to you the words of close to you. Karen and Richard Carpenter of about 40 years ago. Oh, that's terrible. How would I even remember it? The stars fall from heaven. Did the stars really fall from heaven for Karen and Richard Carpenter as they sang about love? On the day that you were born? No. That's the way songs are written. So you get into the, you get into the Song of Solomon, and there's all this picturesque, metaphorical language describing two lovers. Don't get too hung up on the individual words like we do in Romans or Hebrews. They're two different genres of literature. And the Bible doesn't just have two. It doesn't just have five. It has many different genres. G-E-N-R-E-S. Meaning different styles of literature. We have apocalyptic literature. We have theological argumentation like Hebrews and Romans. We have history. Acts. First and second Samuel. There's poetry. There's dialogue. Joe, just on and on. We've got Proverbs. And they each are to be handled a little bit differently. And that's why we have that here. What is it that I'm studying right now? And where is usually not too important, but sometimes it helps and it would help in that passage. Do you know what it says in Acts 15, 1 and 2? 
that Paul and Barnabas decided to go up to Jerusalem, so they went down from Antioch. Then you pull out your atlas and you find out that Antioch's 300 miles north of Jerusalem. How does the Bible use up and down? Altitude. Jerusalem was on a mountaintop. Do you happen to know the name of it? Good. And I'm not, I'm not being good. We answered where? What if we miss this rule of interpretation? The shaking of Haggai 2, 6 through 7. I will shake the heavens and the earth. If we don't look at the small context around it, we're going to think that it's still to come in the future. Because here's how they reason. Haggai 2, 6 through 7 says that God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. And the desire of all nations shall come. Well, the heavens and the earth haven't been shaken yet. Because they're still the same way as God created them 6,000 years ago. Therefore, Haggai 2, 6 through 7 has not yet occurred. But if we go in there and read it, it says that there are two temples, Solomon's and Zerubbabel's, called the former and the latter. So we've got Zerubbabel's temple, that this desire of all nations is going to come to Zerubbabel's temple. When was the last time Zerubbabel's temple was existing? 70 A.D. Therefore, the fulfillment must be inside of that 70 A.D. So then we look further in the context, and we find out, in this place will I give peace. Did something happen in that temple that opened up the way for everyone to see into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place? The, the veil was rent from top to bottom. When What happened? Jesus Christ died. Did that create peace for his people? Was that the desire of all nations? Did that give that temple greater glory than anything Solomon's temple had ever had? Look at how we do all this. You know how we do it? It's really hard. We read the verse before it and the verse after it. Instead of saying, the heavens and the earth haven't been shaken, therefore that passage isn't fulfilled yet. But it's long past. Can we prove it in more ways than I just gave you? Oh, yes. Because Paul quotes it in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 through 29 as having been a fulfilled fact in his life. When were the heavens and the earth shaken in Paul's lifetime, before Jerusalem was destroyed? What shaking was going on already? What he called the time of Reformation in 910. I mean, it was, a t it was an upheaval. It was an upheaval. Here's the Apostle Paul saying, we've got a priest after the order of Melchizedek that has made every priest of the, of the Levitical order of no, longer any, of no value any longer. That's shaking the heavens and the earth. Religious matters, political matters. Matthew chapter 5 is not a new, milder religion. Has anybody ever told you that? Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? That Jesus presented a newer, milder, gentler gospel than the Old Testament? Don't you know that things have changed? But that is not the case. When you go into Matthew chapter 5, and if you'll read the first 20 verses before you get in to his actual arguments, he will tell you that he is correcting Pharisee modifications. And when he says... In Matthew chapter 5, but I say unto you, he is not contradicting Moses. He is not changing or correcting Moses. He is changing and contradicting the Pharisees. They had limited killing to the actual overt act of taking another man's life. Jesus said, but I say unto you, that if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you're guilty of the sixth commandment in the opinion of God. The Pharisees had limited adultery down to the overt act of literal adultery with another man's wife. Jesus said, 
But I say unto you, that if you lust after her in your heart, you've already committed that adultery. And if you use the divorce laws of Deuteronomy 24 to get another woman without a justifiable cause, you have committed adultery. He wasn't correcting Moses. How did we learn this wonderful piece? Listen, what I just gave to you, I don't know how to put a price tag on it. What do you pay to go take another course? What's the, what's the master's course cost for any school around here? 1400 bucks. What's it worth to understand Matthew 5, 6, and 7? That Jesus was not correcting Moses. He was not instituting a new way of God looking at things. He was, he was reestablishing Moses against the Pharisees. Galatians 5, 4 says that you can fall from grace. But if you read the whole verse, do you know what it says? You're still saved. You know how? Because you're justified by the law. That's what it says. It says, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. So don't worry about it. If the Church of Christ takes you to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4 and says, see, you can fall from grace. No, I'm justified by the law. That's looking at the immediate context. Because do you know what that gives away? Paul's only talking about up here. For those of you that think you are justified by the law, you have lost the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his gospel that I presented to you. You have fallen from the knowledge of grace. You have fallen from the knowledge of Christ and his role in your salvation because you think you're justified by the law. But it doesn't say that. It says, ye who are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Adam, how in the world do they get the Bible out of Hebrews 4.12? Do you know that verse? Can you quote it? For the word of God is quick, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Adam got excited about that. Hey, the first time you heard that it was Jesus Christ, not the Bible, who else got excited in here? I went, I went wild. I remember the, the Bob Jones preacher boys wandering around with their key ring. Dave Taylor, do you remember those key rings they had with verses they had to memorize? And Hebrews 4.12 was one of the first ones. This is a verse about the Bible. For the Bible is quick and powerful. Oh, come on. All we have to do is read the verse and know that the statements in there don't describe the Bible. They describe the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next two verses tell us that it's a personal pronoun referring to that word of God. Is Jesus' name the word of God? Yes, 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 and yes. There isn't one thing in that text to make you think it's the Bible. But what is the majority position of seminary-trained, intelligent men who claim to believe the Bible? That Hebrews 4.12 is about the Bible. Whenever you're on a verse, and you're presenting it to someone, and you know it's different than anything they've heard before, and you know that the position they're holding is held by the majority of Christians, and you start to get a little nervous, you need to have a little repertoire in your mind. And one of them on the repertoire is Hebrews 4.12. To give you the comfort and the confidence, hey, if they can be wrong on Hebrews 4.12, they can be just as wrong on this verse. And, and you can go after them, just like David running down to meet Goliath. Let's all stand together. Heavenly Father, our eyes are not lofty nor haughty. We are little babes. We will not exercise ourselves in matters too high for us. But your word is not too high for us. You have given us your word. We will deal with it carefully, soberly, 
diligently, faithfully. Your word is true. You are true. We thank you for these rules of Bible study. We thank you for all the errors that you have saved us from, and we pray that you will save us from more, even those that we may presently hold dear. Show us the truth and we will follow it. Heavenly Father, we do not mean to be any more arrogant or confident than David, who ran to meet Goliath and took five stones to take out his four brothers as well, who also said that he esteemed all the precepts of your word to be right and he hated every false way. We do not want to be any less. We do not want to be any more. We want to be like Ezra, Eli, who, and David, and Paul. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've shown us. Bless these things to the hearts of these men, and bless the food that we now partake of to strengthen our bodies, strengthen our minds, sustain our energy, that we may apply ourselves in learning your word and applying it in our homes. Hear us, Heavenly Father, for the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great object of your revelation from heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've got to keep moving. Father in heaven, if Solomon described himself as a little child that did not know how to go out or to come in, we are far less. His father was David. His mother was Bathsheba. He was trained well. He had been taught the fear of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask you to give us wisdom and understanding to open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law, to hedge us in on every side that we will not imbibe error, not even a small one, that we will be cautious and careful, grave and sober about your precious word. We are thankful for it. We want to be as zealous as David, Elijah, John, and Paul. But we want to be as prudent as Ezra, Elihu, and others in handling the word of God. Help us to that end. In Jesus' name, our Savior, our Lord, our example, we pray. Amen. We are dealing with the small context. The information, the material, it's right around a verse or a sentence or a word that we want to interpret, which means to get the meaning out of it that God intended for us to have. What I want to give you right here at this point, the value of the small context is to get greater glory from some passages that you wouldn't get if you didn't look at the context. We've already used one tonight. When we find the words more sure in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, the value they have is understood by going to verse 16 and finding out about Peter hearing God's voice from heaven. That just makes verse 19, its first few words, powerful. The word of... We have also a more sure word. More sure than what? God's voice from heaven in the presence of three earthly witnesses and three heavenly witnesses. That's as good as it gets. Thank you, Lord. How about charity? When you read about charity in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the charity chapter of the Bible, it means so much more when we understand charity's superiority to the greatest gifts of the New Testament. Do you know what these verses teach at the end of chapter 12? The Lord set some of the church first, apostles, then prophets, and then he works on down to the gift of tongues, 
and he comes to the last verse, verse 31, he says, Yet show I unto you a more excellent way. No way. An apostle like Paul, there is a more excellent way that the church at Corinth, the average ordinary church member at Corinth, could serve God in a more excellent way than Paul? Yes. 1 Corinthians 13. Isn't that, doesn't that add value to that? Wow! I want to read those 15 phrases about love. Charity suffereth long. You mean if I practice that, when people hurt me and offend me, I'm greater than an apostle? Yes. That's why we read the context. It adds so much glory to the scriptures. I hope you already know what's down there below. Examples of pronouns and their antecedents. I'm going to skip that too. They're all exciting to read. These are, these are fun. Uh, you know what an antecedent is. It's the word that a pronoun is representing. A pronoun is he did this. But you want to know who the he is, you got to read back or forward to find out the antecedent of that he. You've got to find some singular male that did whatever is in the verse that has the pronoun. And you'd be surprised in the Bible. I was going to show you some examples, but we don't have time, like Psalm 105, where you've got to go back 14 verses. And there's, there's a plural pronoun in every verse in between. But it's not the one that you're looking for. 14 verses. Now, if you read ahead one verse, you'll get it. But see, when you're reading through the Bible, you don't usually read ahead, you usually read back. What is this talking about? They're, they're wonderful examples showing the importance of context. How about persons or things that are not readily identified in the text? You need to read around them. We've already talked about this verse tonight. For the word of God is quick and powerful in Hebrews 4.12 is the Lord Jesus Christ, not the Bible. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was preaching, he said that Jesus brought them in with Israel's fathers. What did Jesus bring in with Israel's fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, and the rest. It's talking about Joshua. So you've got to read carefully in Stephen's sermon, because that's one of the places in the Bible where the hero in the Old Testament, Joshua, is brought forward into Greek, and Joshua becomes Jesus. Because remember, our Lord's name, Jesus, if you were to take it back into Hebrew, would be Joshua. There's two of those. That's what we have for Numbers 2 and 3 on this page. If you were to find the city of Ariel, and it's it said Ariel, 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 over and over again in Isaiah 29, you just got to keep reading and find out that the city of Ariel is positioned on Mount Zion. That helps, doesn't it? Once you find a city named Ariel on Mount Zion, you know it's Jerusalem. These are examples of what you're only going to find by reading the context. Remember, rule number two that we're talking about is right here. Small context. Have you ever heard me describe prophetic perspective to you? If an Old Testament prophet says, God is God will do something, and a New Testament apostle quotes the Old Testament prophet, he's going to use the right words. The prophet said, God will do something. Could a New Testament apostle quote an Old Testament prophet in the future tense, after the event is past. Yes. 
How about this one? Jimmy Swaggart's favorite. Poor Jimmy. Sherry, and I, I got so worked up just writing this. I, I was, I had Jimmy's name in there, but it wouldn't fit in the line. So I, I said, Sherry, come over here. I went to YouTube. I just had to see Jimmy play one or two songs for me and cry. Uh, but you know, Jimmy Swaggart, every time he preaches, he will get to Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, and quote these words. I will pour out of my spirit. And he pulls his tie down, and there's sweat running everywhere, and there's tears coming down his cheeks, as if that is the moment of fulfillment of Acts 2.17, because Peter had said in the day of Pentecost, I will pour out of my spirit, future tense, so it had to be after Pentecost, and it's Jimmy. Well, that's, that's very convenient. But what's going on in Acts chapter 2? Beautiful Gerald. Peter is quoting Joel, and he says a moment later, this is that, which was spoken of the prophet Joel. But to quote him accurately, you've got to quote Joel in the future tense about an event that's happening right then. This is that. Lord, thank you. How many millions in the world today are led astray by charismatics who think that this is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the latter day to fulfill Joel 2 and Acts 2? Millions. Millions. How about Acts 15 where James stood up at the Council of Jerusalem and said, I will build again the tabernacle of David. Schofield and the dispensationalists and the premillennialists run into the future because it's future tense. I will build, James said, I will build. But James is quoting from Amos. Oh Lord, thank you. Do you know what you're part of tonight? The tabernacle of David. Do you know what the context was of James quoting Amos? The Council of Jerusalem talking about all the Gentiles coming into the church. We, The tabernacle of David has been restored, and the Son of David is sitting on its throne. It is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Got to keep going. Oh, there's more. This is a tithing from the other outline that is available. Do you remember our genitive phrases that we studied last Wednesday evening? Sorry for the overkill on that subject. But remember, what did we learn about genitive phrases? What determines the grammar of a genitive phrase? Context. Context. Remember that? All of this fits together. Rule one, no contradictions in the Bible. Charlie reminded me at break time. Have you ever heard the expression, you can prove anything from the Bible? Yes. When you use it improperly. You can prove anything in the, from the Bible. But not if you use it properly. We will leave all of those. You know, there are ellipses in the Bible. Like Proverbs 18.22, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Is that a true statement with, by itself? Without understanding of a figure of speech in there? There's an ellipsis there. Isn't the book of Proverbs, a lot of it spent on telling you about wives you don't want to be married to? So... Whoso findeth one of those wives has not found a good thing. They have found a terrible thing that's going to ruin their life. So when the Bible says, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, we understand whoso findeth a good wife, whoso findeth a virtuous wife findeth a good thing. How do we know that? By reading the context of the book of Proverbs. We know that there's a whole lot of wives that aren't good. That's the only way you can find an ellipsis, because an ellipsis is missing words, so how are you going to find missing words on a black and white page when they're missing? P please. You're only going to do it by context. And there's, there's quite a few in Proverbs. 
Got to keep going then. Small context is our master guide. The context is going to lead us through by us asking those six questions, who, who, what, when, where, and why, about the book that we're reading, the chapter, and the sentences right around the verse that we're studying. When the Bible says in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, Adam knew his wife Eve. Is this the Lord introducing them after creating Eve for Adam? How do we know? Because if we keep reading a few more clauses, we find out that Cain was the result of this knowledge. And so we know what the word... We, do we need a dictionary for the word no? No, we don't. We just read a few more clauses and we find out, oh, this is where Cain came from. It's only, there's only one place Cain came from and it wasn't an orphanage. It wasn't a stork. It was from Adam knowing Eve. Deuteronomy 23.18, someone read me this precious text that tells us that Christians are not allowed to sell dogs and tithe to proceed from the sale. But I need to hear the verse. Matthew Eastland. It is an abomination to the Lord thy God to sell your dog and to bring the price of that dog into the house of the Lord and tithe it. Can't you understand that from that verse? Did you know that we had an ordained minister that communed with us in our church that believed that about that verse? Forget who. I'm just telling you. It's amazing what people can believe by taking a verse out of its context. What is the price of a dog? The amount you've got to pay for your male sex pervert. It's in verse 17. It's a sodomite. The Lord just calls him a dog. We learn a whole lot of things by comparing those two verses, don't we? We find out the Lord's cherished words for the alternative lifestyle. A gay man. A dog. By comparing Deuteronomy 23, 17 and 18. Proverbs 23, 29. Someone read it to me. God, what is that, fighting or football? That man is really messed up. It's wine. Because if you read around that context, you're going to find out what it is about. Somebody read me Job 31, 1. This newly married man over here that's only been married for two and a half years. Two and a half? About... Job said, I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Why didn't Job care about his female servants? Why wouldn't he even think about them? Why wouldn't he give them a raise? Why wouldn't he give them a weekend off once in a while? Why wouldn't he think about them? Lustfully. Because if you go read the next nine verses, it's talking about adultery. It's talking about his marriage covenant to look on his wife only as the object of his sexual interest. 1 Corinthians 6. 19 through 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is given to you by God, and ye are not your own? Don't you know you can't smoke because of that verse? You can't chew because of that verse. But if we read the context of... I've heard, I heard that all my life. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. My body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, therefore I can't smoke or drink. Now usually the people that want to preach that the loudest have three pieces of cherry pie washed down by two sodas after six pieces of fried chicken at the church's potluck. But they want to tell you how you're supposed to take care of this temple of the Holy Ghost. But if we read the ten verses that end at 1 Corinthians 6.20, what specific sin throughout is it talking about? Fornication. 
taking your body and putting it in bed with a prostitute, you are taking the Holy Spirit under the sheets with a wicked woman. It's described very carefully there. How do we, how do we get this blessing of truth about 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20? Context. The small context. The Psalm 150 in verse 4, which talks about the musical instruments of David justify the use of organs in New Testament worship? Not at all. Why? Because the big context of Psalm 150 in verse 4 is David under the Old Testament. That's all you need. If you ever talk about instrumental music, where is the person, your opponent going to go right off the bat? To David. They're going to go to David. What? This is why, this is why we limit it to the context. The Old Testament is not how we find guidance for New Testament worship. Does anybody remember? Is there someone here that will make me very happy tonight and tell me when will the day of the Lord of Isaiah 13, 6 take place? Matthew? Yes. The Medes and the Persians would overthrow Babylon. Isaiah 13 is the burden of Babylon. But if you go read it, it sounds just like the second coming of Jesus Christ. The language in Isaiah 13, it's my favorite place to go. It's a place you ought to have in your memory bank. If I ever need to talk to someone about the language of Acts 2 or Matthew 24, take them to Isaiah 13, because it sounds so much like the second coming of Jesus Christ. The whole world's going to be turned up. And it was. The Babylonian Empire that they thought was impregnable in the city of Babylon turned upside down by the Medes and the Persians. And it says them by name in Isaiah 13, but it calls it the day of the Lord. How do we learn all that? Just by reading the chapter. First sentence, the burden of Babylon. You know what you can know about the rest of the chapter? It's about the destruction of Babylon that was on, that, that straddled the Tigris River in the modern nation of Iraq and that Nebuchadnezzar was its leader. Matthew 24, 13. And he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Is that the Calvinistic doctrine of perseverance of the saints? That if you'll endure to the end, if you'll fight sinning and grow in holiness, you'll end up going to heaven? Is that verse used by Calvinists that way? And he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. What is the end and what is the salvation? And what is the perseverance and enduring of Matthew 24, 13? The destruction of Jerusalem. By context. All of these are examples of context. Case study. We've had two rules so far. Rule number one. How do you want to word it to yourself? No contradictions in the Bible. Large context. Knowing this first. No private interpretations. I don't care how you remember it, but when you go home tonight, rule one, there are no contradictions in the Bible. We make everything fit. It is our job to reconcile all the texts of Scripture to one consistent body of truth. Second rule we've learned, smaller context. We want to look at the information that's woven around a particular passage to find out what was the intent of the Holy Spirit. We ask who, whom, what, when, where, and why. We consider the different genres of writing. We consider the purpose, the intent. We look at the verses around it. What was he driving at here? What was his goal? To find out the meaning. Here we come to a case study. 
Now, there's many more pages that I'm going to show you. It's about a 20-page document on the website. The link's at the end here. I'm just going to give you three or four pages. This should excite you. This is God blessing us with insight into the Bible that is lost by the modern versions. There's so much that can be said, and it has been said in the long document on this subject. We've got a problem, though, in the Bible. Here is where we start practicing our two rules. This is a case study. Here's what. Here's how it happens. Let me see that NIV of yours. I want to show you what's wrong in Mark 1-2. You show them, and, you, and they say, you know what? You're right. There's an error in my Bible. But there's an error in your Bible. Let me show you two verses in your Bible. 2 Kings 8-26 and 2 Chronicles 22-2. Look at this. In 2 Kings 8-26, it says that a Hosiah was 22 years old when he became king. In 2 Chronicles 22.2, it says he's 42 years old when he became king. It's describing the same event. It has the same information. One's 22 and one's 42. You want to see my NIV? It says 22 in 2 Kings 8 and 22 in 2 Chronicles 22.2. Your Bible has an error that mine doesn't have. So it's tit for tat. You read your King James, I'll read my NIV. Because it was written in a 7th grade level, and your Bible is so hard, it was written at an 8th grade level. You ought to read the studies that are on the internet about the reading level of the King James Version versus these other versions. It's ridiculous. They try to make, they try to make their Bible sound like a 3rd grade primer, and the King James Version could only be read by college graduates. Oh, no, 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 no. Do you remember what William Tyndale said when he translated the Bible into English for the first time? And printed it. Every plowboy in England is going to know more than the bishop of the Catholic Church and the Church of England. That's a whole. I'm getting off. I'm getting off track. Look at this dilemma, though. Oh, this just. Lord, I love the Lord. I love our King James Bible. They didn't change that. Every modern version has changed it. Even though their Hebrew manuscripts say forty-two. You know, we're more honest with the originals than they are. i got to bring up another verse. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 8. There is a serious problem here, and it's right there. What happened to Ahaziah, Joash his son, and Amaziah, Joash's son, in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ? What happened? They're gone. Cut out. Joram, who was the son of Jehoshaphat, married Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab. For just a moment, remember, there are two lines... Microphone. There are two lines coming out of Solomon and Rehoboam. Remember, the nation was split during the reign of Rehoboam into ten tribes called Israel... Two tribes called Judah, Judah being David's descent, where the Lord Jesus Christ would come from, the other ten tribes being cast off by God, taken into captivity by the Assyrians, Judah kept intact, along with Benjamin, for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. In Matthew chapter 1, we have the descent of the Judah kings, the kings of Judah. But three of them are taken out, and the first one is Ahaziah, the man that we're checking on in this contradiction 
that they show to us in our King James Bibles. The reason is that Jehoram, Jehoshaphat's son, married into the other line. He married Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. In the Bible, it's called affinity. God sent a prophet to Jehoshaphat, who's one of the best four kings of Judah, and said, you've got many good things in your life and in your reign, but there is something I hate. You have made affinity. With who? The Philistines? The Egyptians? The Hittites? No. With Israel and the Baal worshippers coming out of Ahab and Omri. So you know what the Lord did to Jehoshaphat? He took the children of the second, the third, and the fourth generation and cut them out just like he promised he would. That's what happened. To marrying outside the Lord. Three kings cut out. They don't have an explanation for it and they can't prove it from a Bible. They think there's an error in the chronology. Isn't that neat? You take the 42 and change it to 22 because you want it to match in the two passages in the Old Testament. So you lose the hidden wisdom given to us by God as to why there are three kings missing from Matthew chapter 1. That, that's as good. Listen, if you, if you love riddles and mysteries and solving things, this is, this is fantastic. And do you know what? Everyone more than 200 years ago understood this. They would defend us. Do you think William Tyndale changed 2 Chronicles 22-2 to match up 2 Kings 8-26? No. Do you think he knew had the explanation? Yes, they did. What hypocrisy to change their originals. And we're the ones keeping them. By rejecting a contradiction and changing the words of God, they broke rule one. We, we, we reject a contradiction. We say, that is not a contradiction except in our understanding. And by studying the context, rule which is our rule number two, about Ahaziah, we learn wonderful truth. Ahaziah was 22 years old biologically, you can figure that out really fast, because his father wasn't old enough for him to be 42 years old. So you know very quickly what a text cannot mean. It cannot mean he was 42 years old biologically, so he must be 22 years old biologically and 42 years old in some other sense. Ahaziah, and when you add up the years, you find out he's 42 years old in the profane Israelite kingdom of Omri, who was the worst king Israel had. Then Ahab, then Athaliah, his daughter, that married Jehoram, and it comes down to Ahaziah being born to that unholy union, and then his son, then his son, are cut out of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. God fulfilled his promised judgment on the second, third, and fourth generation of Jehoshaphat's wicked affinity. Here is special wisdom that can't be learned in the cemetery, I mean the seminary, and it can't be found in any modern version of the Bible. Thank you, Lord. Case study number one. If you want to know more, there's a link. You'll have it in your inbox. 20 pages. It's so exciting. We, oh, it's exciting. Thank you, Lord. We, we would have a, we would have a problem in Matthew 1. We would have a problem in 2 Chronicles 22 too. We know that he can't, he can't be 42 years old biologically. So we would have two problems. We don't have any problems. We've got secret, hidden, inside information given to us by the God of heaven by following the rules of Bible interpretation. How do we get there? There is not a contradiction between those two ages. Do you know what kind of courage that takes? The Bible would say stones. Do you know what kind of courage it takes for you to take a stand like that and say there is no contradiction? That is only in your mind, Bible skeptic. 
that is only in your mind, Dr. So-and-so, Professor Emeritus of the Ancient Languages, there is no contradiction. We started there. Then we started reading. We went everywhere Ahaziah should pop up in the Bible. We couldn't find him in Matthew chapter 1. By reading, we found out that God hated the affinity between Judah and Israel. And we put it all together. It's in 17 pages. And we come to truth. That is precious. Do you know how smart you have to be to be able to do that? Just read your Bible at about the 6th grade level. And take out a concordance. Look up every occurrence of Ahaziah. Go read every one of those verses. And you're going to start putting these pieces together. And then, of course, God sends us Elihu's and Philip's to help us along the way. And so in that study, you'll find out men that have held this position before and who had provided various ways of sorting out the 42 years of Omri. But, you know, modern scholars want to make their Bibles consistent for little second graders that want to read it like a Dick and Jane Primer so that there's 22 in both passages. Sorry for taking so long on that, but it is precious. You want another little thing to put in your repertoire when somebody's picking on your Bible? Hey, his eyes, just send him a link. Why don't you read this? And see how dumb those poor translators were back in 1611. I know they didn't get to go to your school. Have you ever read about those 55 men that translated our Bible? Yeah. Wow! Amen. What in the world do we call that? The right-hand side. She could whip him in less than a minute. What a ridiculous joke. Do you know where we get that from? This verse right here. Taken out of its context and blown out of all proportion. How in the world did they get long hair out of Revelation 3.20? The Bible says it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Come on! Do you know that the only way to get to Revelation chapter 3 is to read Revelation chapter 1? What color is his hair in Revelation chapter 1? White as snow. What color are his blue eyes? Oh, Joel. Where is he? <laughs> I just drew on a picture. And you guys can see it. Let's give him a set of glasses here. He's got blue eyes. This is better than an overhead projector, is what I'm trying to say. I'm, I'm thankful. Why did God put us in a situation where we've got witty inventions that we can present the truth better, easier than it's ever been presented before? You know, for the last four hours, we've been churning out a proverb around the whole world without even being there. The Lord has blessed us. Let's use these tools. Let's learn God's Word. Revelation 3.20 Case study. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. What were the feet like of the Savior that spoke those words? To get to chapter 3, you have to read chapter 1, right? Revelation chapter 1, what were his feet like? Burning brass. Yes. What did his voice sound like? Many waters. Did that little wimp back there in the previous page look like he had any voice at all? This is the Lord Niagara Falls. Yes, we've been there with a deafening roar. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. You have seen this effeminate John Lennon lookalike picture that Catholics fantasize about from this verse. This verse is offered like cheap candy. 
about a million times every Sunday to get reprobates to decide for Jesus. That little wimp is standing at your heart's door, knocking on it, and all you have to do is say, Jesus, I want you to come in and save me. That is a horrible heresy. That is not Revelation 3.20. That is not the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1. If you're going to read the book of Revelation and come up with that interpretation of 3.20, make sure you read chapter 1 and you read chapter 19. Does he have the same physical characteristics in 1 and 19? Except in 1, he's standing. In 19, what's he doing? Riding on a white horse. But is it still the same description? Except he has something dripping from his girdle and his garments in chapter 19. It's, is it his redemptive blood? No. The wine press of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the world's going to see next. Not that little hippie. This is offered in... Most of you young people in this room, young men, unless you've been out in school or other relatives, you don't know how much this is bandied about every Sunday. One of their favorite texts. The context. Jesus does not look anything like it. Jesus does not knock at the door of depraved sinners. These words were said to the saved of the church of Laodicea. The blessing Jesus offered was fellowship, not eternal life. How do we know this against 99% of Christians? Right here. Rule 2. How pr What's that worth to you? How do we tell the Lord? We cannot despise the riches of His goodness to us. This is such a simple point, and you've heard it so many times before. Do you know what you're doing? There's a tendency to do right now? Get on to a new one. Why get on to a new one? This is a huge one. This is huge. This is their Goliath. This is their champion they bring out. We pick up Revelation 1, Revelation 3, the small context, and slay him with one stone. Run up to him and take his sword and chop his head off. There's nothing left, left but a big oversized bleeding corpse, and we carry his ugly head back to Mount Zion of the New Testament and give it to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know, Lord Jesus Christ, that you do not look like that, you do not act like that, and the precious information of this verse is that you want to have personal fellowship in the pavilion, in the center of the army of heaven with us, if we will just let you come in. Even as a church that thinks it has everything, we need a personal relationship with you. It, it is so much better. The king of kings is standing at the door. He's already knocked it down once without letting me open it. Because you know what? I wasn't going to open it. Does it say that in the book of Revelation? I wonder why they don't read that. When he opens... No man shuts, and when he shuts, no man opens. Why don't they ever quote that? I had the door locked and barred because I preferred the devil and all of his toys he offered me. But the Lord Jesus Christ came to that door and kicked it off its hinges. And he came in and rescued me. But then I got puffed up in my personal life as a Christian and forgot the relationship that I needed to have with my king. And so he's offering to let me come into his pavilion or he'll come into mine and sup with me, and me with him. We can sit and share bread and wine, the King of Kings, and little Jonathan Crosby, if I'll submit to Revelation 3.20. They steal the value of that verse. 
They corrupt that verse. We restore that verse. There's a link on our website where you can read more about that. And give it to anybody that that falls for that verse. Third case study. Hebrews. Follow with me. This is the last case study. We will end on time. Will you give me 12 more minutes? Most difficult passage of the New Testament. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. This is considered by many the most difficult passage that causes the most Christians consternation in the New Testament. Because when you read that, it says, if you just read over the words, if you fall away, it's impossible to restore you to repentance. You're lost and going to hell. Now the Arminians hold that verse that way. That you can lose your salvation. But you know what? They always tell you how you can get it back. But this text says you can't get it back. You know, any Arminian that believes you can lose your salvation also believes you can get it back. You can get saved two or three times a day, and most people will until the day they die. Just You don't want to die when you haven't got it right. You understand that, don't you? You might want to pull the plug just as soon as you've confessed your last sin, because if before you take your last... Forget it. It's so ridiculous. The Arminians say that you can lose your salvation from this text. The Calvinists come in here and say... These are just false professors that never that were not elect, not justified, not born again. That's amazing. Look what it says about them. They were enlightened. I'm not going to do this because I'm a little slow at it. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. I wonder what that is. Were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Do you mean the Holy Ghost entered them as the elect children of God and then left them? Tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Everything that heaven has to offer, they were brought into it. These were fully converted, holy brethren. No wonder it's written in a book. Paul's trying to warn the Hebrew beloved brethren of his that were saved about what could happen. Well, what do other people do with the text? I was told that it was just a hypothetical situation that couldn't happen anyway. Well, that doesn't encourage anyone to do anything. Seriously. I don't know how to tell you the value of what we are on right now. It's the understanding of the whole book of Hebrews. This is the hardest. This is simple. Because of Proverbs 8-9. They are all plain to him that understandeth and right to them that find knowledge. And it's not because we are understanding men or we are knowledgeable men. It's because we have humbly asked God to show us the truth and we're willing to take a stand on it even if we're the only ones we know taking that stand. Are you still willing to do that? If you say no, you endanger our entire church. And you certainly endanger you and your family. The next passage, second most difficult in the book of Hebrews. If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, 
Look at this. There is no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain, fearful, looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Have you ever sinned presumptuously? Then you're dead. You are on your way to hell, according to this text. This has shaken so many little sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have read this, and they know they have sinned. Have you ever sinned willfully? Have I ever sinned willfully? After I knew the truth, there's no more sacrifice for sin. Two of the most difficult passages in Hebrews. Arminians say, you can lose your salvation. Calvinists say, false professors. Professors, Others, a hypothetical situation that benefits no one. What is the true interpretation of these irremediable warnings? Irremediable means there's no way out. There is no more sacrifice for sin. It is impossible to renew them to repentance. Irremediable. Once you commit the crimes that are described in Hebrews 6, falling away, Hebrews 10, sinning willfully against the knowledge of the truth, it's over. What is the Bible study rule to help us? Well, it's tonight's subject. There are four of these passages in Hebrews. Here are two others that I have not given you. Four of them. From the beginning to the end of this book. Brethren, let's put it into practice right now. Rule number one, Eternal life cannot be lost. Did Jesus Christ say he would lose none of them? Does Romans chapter 8 say it is impossible to be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? So we blow out their ideas of losing salvation. The Arminian is gone. By reading the context, the Calvinist is gone because it says too much about those people. They were God's children. God gave away the solution with the title of the book. Hebrews who, who, what, when, where, why? Whom? Hebrews. It is written to Israelite Christians. It's written to Jewish Christians. When? Before 70 AD. Was there something terrible that was going to fall on the Jewish nation that would bring certain destruction of the adversaries of the Lord Jesus Christ. If these Jews went back to Moses, would they put themselves under the curse of the nation? Absolutely. Would they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh? If you were a baptized believer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting His blood for the redemption of your soul, and you went back and offered one animal sacrifice, what have you done to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? You have trampled it underfoot. You have crucified to yourself afresh the Son of God. You have put yourselves in the shoes of the scribes and the Pharisees that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a few pages that are written to prove to back this up. 43? Brother, is that what we came up with? Newell? 51? Okay. There's 51 pages and there's a link at the end. I'm just telling you a summary of what the Lord's shown us in the past. Whom is the book of Hebrews? It's written to Jewish Christians. When? Before 70 A.D., while Paul was alive, he was warning Jewish saints 
against backsliding to Moses. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth. Is that committing adultery when you know that adultery is wrong? Is that numbering Israel when you know that numbering Israel is wrong? Is that denying the Lord Jesus Christ when you know that denying the Lord Jesus Christ is wrong and you were just warned by him three hours before that you were going to do it, but you went ahead and did it anyway? Are you with me on those examples by David and Peter? Does that mean they lost their eternal life? No! What is the sin? It's apostasy. What does Hebrews chapter 10 say? Therefore, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. It tells you right there, let us hold fast our profession of faith. What is it? New Testament Christianity and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we sin willfully against that knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're crucifying Jesus all over again and trampling upon the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and counting the, the spirit of, and doing despite to the spirit of grace. Because those men were partakers of the Holy Ghost, weren't they? If you go back to a system that didn't have the spirit, but was outward ritual to the senses, you're doing despite to the spirit of grace. Oh, this is... Does the New Testament have anything to say about the importance of this event? Did John te teach it? Did Jesus teach it? About miserably destroying those wicked men? Did Paul say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the wrath of God has come upon them to the uttermost? Wrath to the uttermost. Does that sound like you're going to get away from it? If you go back? No, because Hebrews 3 and 4 involve a curse. Israel got to the end, edge of Canaan, and they wouldn't take the land of Canaan, and God swore in his wrath, you'll never enter into my rest. What did Paul use Hebrews 4, 4, in verse 1 and verse 11? Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it, because there was a curse on that nation. When he walked out of the temple the last time, he said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And if you went back to Moses, you put yourself under the judgment. All four pastors of irremediable judgment, if you go back to Moses, you are putting yourself in with a group of people who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. You're trampling his blood under your feet. You're doing despite the spirit of grace. And you're bringing upon yourself the destruction of his adversaries. Oh, thank you, Lord. I know that I've sinned willfully against the knowledge of the truth. But I know that I haven't apostatized as a baptized believer of the Lord Jesus Christ going back to offer an animal to put away the sins of my soul. I know I haven't done that. I know that Hebrews 10 does not apply to me directly. And there's a link for a whole lot more information on that point. Brethren, two rules tonight by the grace of God. The book of Hebrews. John Owens. One of the smartest English minds that have ever written. Chaplain for Oliver Cromwell. Smart doesn't mean a thing. Chaplain for Oliver Cromwell. His work on the book of Hebrews? Seven volumes. Never got close. Has to go in there like the Kelvinists and create false professors? If those are false professors, what good does it have for anyone? Can it help the false professor? No, they're a reprobate on their way to hell. Can it help the true believer? No, because he's never going to be treated like a false professor. Hello? Hello? Is there value in the book of Hebrews? It is fantastic value. By God's grace, we are unworthy. There came a point in this church when this book was preached through, I was branded as an impulsive, impetuous man in the Bible by two other ministers. 
But it was so simple and so plain and so obvious, we went ahead and did it. By the grace of God, and this is not how I prove doctrine, we were done with the series on Hebrews. I bought Adam Clark's commentary. It cost me 95 precious dollars for a Methodist. Something is seriously wrong when you spend 95 bucks for a Methodist. I bought him because in Luke 135, he told his whole denomination that they were heretics and he wasn't even sure if they'd make it to heaven because they believe in the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. I bought that book for Luke 135 and his comments about that long as he ripped his own denomination. They loved Adam Clark. He was the president of the British Methodist Society because of his life and his preaching and his study of God's word, even though he called them heretics. He met the Wesley, he met John Wesley on his deathbed and said, Sir, I am not sure that you are going to heaven because you believe in the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. The Wesleys founded the Methodist Church. I love a man with that kind of courage. I'll buy even a Methodist when he's that courageous. I flipped over to the introduction to Hebrews and I'm reading through it. And here's it. If we would just remember that this epistle was written to converted Jews before the destruction of Jerusalem, it would solve so many of the difficulties in this book. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Th thank you for a little pat on the back and a little brother who was never baptized right. That's what I believe about a man who defends the Lord Jesus Christ like Adam Clark did. That's not very important. What's important is, you should be able to know from the two rules we learned tonight, our position on Hebrews is correct. It's the only one that makes sense and fits that book in the rest of the New Testament. Stand with me. It's 9.02. Those are the hardest verses in the New Testament. It is impossible if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance. Why? Because by going back, they'd be under the curse of God. Did the generation of wilderness, once God cursed them, could they go back and repent? Did they repent? Yes. Did God accept it? No. Understand now? Beautiful. Thank you, Lord. Heavenly Father, all the glory is thine, none to us, but for thy great name's sake. We thank Thee through the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit and the precious plainness of Your Word that we see and know these and other things. Thank You, Lord, for showing us. Now take us to our homes and let our thoughts and our words and our deeds this night and tomorrow, if You give it to us, line up with this precious Word in every place where it governs our lives. Heavenly Father, let us not rejoice with a head knowledge about rules to interpret the Bible. Let us take that Bible and put wings to our feet to keep thy commandments. Forgive us our sins. Lead us in paths of righteousness. Hedge us about and keep us from evil and evil from us. And show us what else we do not see. And we will follow thee with all of our hearts. I love you, O Lord, and I thank you for your word. Help us to learn it better. In Jesus' name, amen.